The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Markets rocked by global slowdown fears, but this morning investors trying to turn it around. Futures right now, they are higher. It has not just been stocks, commodities, crypto, even oil being sold off. As investors look to raise cash any way they can, is the bottom finally in? Mega Tech Rec, the staggering number on just how much market cap some of the biggest stocks have lost in just a matter of days. Tesla, once again hitting the brakes at its Shanghai facility as even more China lockdowns crush the supply chain. And apparently it's not a match. Google being accused of holding developers hostage with its Android app payment system. We'll tell you about all this on this Tuesday, May 10th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us on what will no doubt be another very busy day on Wall Street. So why don't we jump right in? And it's looking a lot better today than it has certainly the last couple of sessions. Cue the music. Stock futures right now, they are actually not in turmoil as much. They are higher across the board. But of course, all this after more big declines the last couple of sessions, particularly yesterday. NASDAQ tanking another 4% on Monday. It is now down more than 25% for the year. In fact, we are on pace for the sixth worst year ever for the NASDAQ, just passing by 2001's drop. Long way to go, but if the year ended today, it would be the sixth worst ever in about 50 years. A big reason, of course, has been the sudden and shocking surge in bond yields, but yields actually fell a bit on Monday. And some are seeing that as maybe a sign of a bottom being close because it's the first time in a while that bonds got bought while stocks sold off. Hmm, something to watch. Right now, bond yields, they are moving down just a bit. In the oil market, crude oil also falling on Monday. You got China lockdown concerns, maybe people raising cash, everything else. We saw oil fall. It is up right now about 42 cents a barrel, just over $103 a barrel natural gas. It also got hit. It is back below Eight bucks, or in fact, now back below seven at six dollars and ninety-nine cents. Speaking of dollars, we cannot ignore what has been happening to the U.S. dollar. Probably don't talk about it enough. The dollar index is absolutely on fire. The mighty greenback is at a twenty-year high, and that is going to impact all kinds of things like commodities, particularly oil and anything traded and sold around the world. Watch the dollar index. Going in the opposite direction, though, of the dollar has been crypto. It got crushed again on Monday. Bitcoin flying below 30,000, but some good news because we'd like you to wake up with some good news. If you're on the East Coast of the United States, we are seeing gains across the board. And right now, we are back closing in on 32,000. So at least right now, nearly everything we track is higher. That has been certainly a big change from the last couple of days. It's early. We'll see if it sticks, but at least waking up today maybe feels eh, a little bit better than Monday. But 
What doesn't anyway? All right, let's get a look now at how global markets are shaping up on the back of Monday's sell-off. we got Sherry Kang in Hong Kong tracking the overnight trade there. Juliana Tattlebaum is always in our London newsroom. But Sherry, let's begin with you and what happened in Asia on your Monday. Or Tuesday, excuse me. A big bout of volatility for sure. Good morning, Brian. And of course, we did see Asian stocks mostly down. However, as we watched U.S. stock futures climbing back up, we actually saw a lot of these markets pairing back as some of the early opening losses. Nikkei 225 down just about 0.5 percent. Ditto for the Cosby. Hang Seng was really the big loser. And their technology stocks were really seeing the pronounced loss. So once again, we're talking about the Alibabas, Meituans and Tencents seeing pronounced losses. And that explains that 3 percent of decline when it comes to the Hang Seng Tech Index. Interestingly enough, mainland Chinese stocks actually closed higher pretty much across the board. And I see interesting because the global markets are feeling jittery because of, of course, on the one side, the Fed policy, but on the other side, China's COVID lockdown and, of course, worries over a potential demand destruction. However, we saw Shanghai Composite for one pushing higher by 1%. And get this, a tech-heavy Star 50 index pushing higher by more than 2.5%. Startup board at Chinex also up more than 2% at the close. So interesting. And it's not very clear what they were reacting to. However, yesterday after the market closed, we did see the PBOC, the Central Bank of China, once again coming out with some policy support, saying they're going to take steps to boost confidence, step up support for the real economy. And that could explain this dollar pulling back versus the Chinese currency, CNH, as well as a CNY. Brian. All right, Sherry King, thank you very much. Now to the early trade in Europe, which is also looking a lot better this Tuesday morning. Juliana, how are things looking? It is Brian. And one of our Twitter followers said, why are you and Brian always the bearer of bad news if, of course, you are along the market? So today marks a change in pace from what we've seen recently. We've got green across the board, a rebound underway here in Europe. The size of the gains, though, not quite matching the size of the losses yesterday. The stock 600 ended nearly 3% lower. But we do see some healthy buying taking place. CAC 40 over in France is up more than 1%. The German market catching a strong bid this morning, up about 1.5%. Similar gains for the Italian market. The UK market, uh, the FTSE 100, is up about eight-tenths of a percent. So more modest gains here, but still green across the board. From a sector perspective, we are seeing particularly strong appetite for cyclicals. So we've got construction up 2.2 percent, banks up about 2 percent, autos, chemicals, industrials, all performing very well. On the downside, with the exception of basic resources, which is very, very tied to the China story these days, um, we are seeing less demand for healthcare, which is up just six basis points or so. Oil and gas also taking a bit of a breather this morning. Media and utilities, as well as food and bev, underperforming. So, Brian, it seems like this morning investors are willing to put more risk back on the table, put more money back into the market. But still, um, I would imagine investors are a little bit hesitant, a little bit in wait-and-see mode to see how U.S. markets trade today. Yeah, and i got to tell that Twitter user, by the way, by whoever it is, thank you for watching. First off, I'll say that, that... (laughs) Because we are the first show in the U.S., we're going to get the stuff that happens overnight. And sometimes it's not good news, Juliana, right? It's not our fault. Absolutely. I mean, kind of is, we no, say not it. our fault. And, and yeah. if you're short Juliana. the market, we're actually the bearer of good news. 
That's true. That's a great point. I can't see you. are just a floating <laughs> head and arms with the green on the screen behind you, Juliana. But we appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> Juliana Tatelbaum, thank you very much. All right, back here at home. And Monday had something happen that had not happened in a year. The S&P 500 fell below 4,000 at one point. You got what else? Concerns about the Fed, inflation, eventual slowdown, consumer spending, all hitting the markets hard. But has the market become maybe too nervous, given that much of the economic data that we've been getting has actually been pretty good? Let's bring in Brian Levitt. He is global market strategist at Invesco. And Brian, I know the data we get is looking in the rearview mirror. Whenever we get a number, it's from something that happened last month or two months ago. I get that. But is there any chance that the market as a sort of global mechanism has gotten too pessimistic or is it right? Is the wisdom of crowds working? I think the market I think the market got is right in the sense that we've seen interest rates move up significantly with the inflationary pressures that we're grappling with. And when rates move up, you get a valuation adjustment. And so we've had that. What you also have is policy, which is uncertain and policy is going to be uncertain until inflationary pressures start to moderate and we can better size where the Fed funds rate will ultimately have to go. So it's pretty classic the way this is playing out. When bond rates spike and policy is uncertain, you get the volatility. Now, for long-term yeah. investors, um, are we getting a little bit too bearish? Yeah, long-term investors are probably getting too bearish here. Well, yeah, and this is not the first drawdown we have had. We've got to remember that. Of course, March 2020, pandemic lockdowns, very different situation. I completely get it. S&P fell, I think, about... 30%. We've had it back in 2008, 2009. We had it in 2000, 2001. It is painful. It can last longer than we think. But ultimately, those have become opportunities. If you are a longer term investor, not tomorrow, not I'm not talking about next month. That's not long term. If you are a long term investor, shouldn't we be looking for opportunity right now for, you know, three, five, 10 years out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was looking, you know, last was it Thursday felt so terrible. That was the 54th worst day of the last 25 years. So as bad as it felt, we've been there 53 or 54 other times. I think I have uh, 54 wow. wrinkles on my forehead to prove that. And and when you have those types of downturns, <laughs> history suggests adding money those days uh, uh, is actually better than pulling money out of the market. So it all goes back to the first principles, which is time in the market is matter matters more. Don't try to time yep. it. Now, you know, people can argue and say, look, in the last 25 years, the Federal Reserve was there to lower rates. Anytime we got into problems, this is a very different environment that is raising rates and, and they're going full bore on it. I get that. Um, the market's pricing that in. It's challenging. It's not fun. But over the long term, betting against the market is betting against the human civilizations, betting against the things getting better over time. And I'm not willing to make that bet. Yeah, th this is really analogous, it feels like, to 1994, where the Fed raised rates 2.5%. In 95, the Dow did jump 33%. I don't know if that'll happen again. I want to read you a quote in a research note from uh, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovich came out yesterday. Um, we stay pro-risk with overweights in stocks, he says equities, in stocks and commodities, and underweights in bonds and cash. The past week's sell-off appears overdone, driven to a large extent by technical flows, fear and poor market liquidity rather than fundamental developments. Now, I highlighted the word liquidity, Brian, on my own because Scott Minard of Guggenheim told us last week at the Milken Conference there is a shortage of liquidity 
in the bond market, meaning just not a lot of money. And that's the reason we're seeing these outsized swings. He thinks that can also affect equities because the money to buy things or do other trades is simply not there like it used to be because of the interest rate moves. Would you agree with any of that? Some of that? None of that? Well, I think the right and and that, you know, as investors have fled bonds for the first time in in 40 years or so, that's led to this equity valuation adjustment. But we also have to remember what 3% can start to mean for savers. I mean, it's been a long time since we've been able to generate any type of interest in government bonds. And so there will be a captive audience. Now, where do rates ultimately settle? We'll have to see. But what we're going to see over the coming months is a slowdown in economic activity as the Fed tightens policy pretty significantly. So I'm hard pressed to imagine interest rates continuing to move meaningfully higher, which means investors will find their way back into those markets uh, looking for those more attractive yields. Now, are we at the bottom? Look, there's usually a pretty massive capitulation at the end. We're getting there. You know, usually by the time you're at the bottom, it's only like 10 percent of the of the stocks in the New York Stock Exchange are trading above their 200 moving day, 200 moving day average, 200 day moving average. And right now we're we're below we're coming below 30. So that's good. Are we all the way there? Maybe not. So there could be more volatility ahead. But yes, for long term investors, stocks are a better way to play this. And stocks are a better hedge against inflation long term, long term than bonds are. So, yeah, that's where investors should be over, yeah. over long terms. It's, it's going to be hard to and, beat the equity and when you get over that, long term. Yeah, it is up, what, 77% of the time. And But when you get that statement, your quarterly statement of your 401k or your investment account in, in the mailbox, the email box, just hit delete. <laughs> it's going to look ugly. <laughs> Good Don't look at it. Good Move advice. on and think long term. Brian Levitt, I'm going to steal that 54th thing from my RBI at some point. Brian Levitt, really appreciate the insight. Take care. Have a great day. Only my the pleasure. 54th worst day in 25 years. That is a good RBI. All right. Also happening now, continued COVID lockdowns and supply shocks in China finally taking a toll on Tesla. Let's get more on that and some other key headlines that are happening right now with Savannah Hanau. Savannah, good morning. Hey, Brian, good morning. Yeah, well, Tesla has reportedly halted most of its production at its Shanghai facility. According to Reuters, the move stems from the EV maker facing problems in securing parts for its vehicles. The report says the plant is expected to roll out less than 200 cars today. That's a sharp drop from the 1,200 it had been building on a daily basis since reopening less than a month ago following a closure due to COVID lockdowns in Shanghai. Reuters adds that Tesla had planned as late as last week to increase output to pre-lockdown levels by next week. President Biden is calling on Congress to quickly approve a $33 billion aid package for Ukraine. The president making that call, telling lawmakers to do so before trying to pass $10 billion in new COVID funding, arguing that U.S. aid for Ukraine has nearly run out. The move marks a reversal for the president after insisting last month that the aid and pandemic funding be approved together. Separating the two bills is expected to increase the chances both are passed by Congress. And Grindr has announced that it is going public. The dating app for the LGBTQ community saying it's merged with the SPAC-TIGA acquisition. The merger, which is expected to close in the second half of the year, will raise $384 million in total funds for Grindr. The deal values the app at around $2 billion post-transaction closing, Brian. 
All right, Savannah now. Savannah, thank you very much. You got it. All right, we have got a lot more to do on this busy Tuesday, and when we come back, much more on the ripple effects of China's lockdowns and why what you may have heard about some problems at the big American ports getting better is uh, not exactly correct. Plus, your big morning movers and the worrying signals sending shares of both Novavax and Upstart plummeting. Look at those declines. Ouch. Later on, Amazon apparently taking action against employees who led unionization efforts. Story that you're going to have to hear and much more right after this. Stick around. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. If you would have talked to us about this last year, and we did, by the way, we would have thought that by this time this year, at least some global supply chain issues would be beginning to ease. But a recent report by RBC says problems may only be getting worse in some parts as China's COVID lockdowns, Russia's war in Ukraine and other global events add to delays at ports and drive up costs once again. And get this, RBC says that one fifth of the world's container ship fleet is currently stuck in congestion at various ports. Look at that odd-looking graphic. You're thinking, what in the world is that? Well, that is a screen grab from marinetraffic.com's website around the port of Shanghai. Each of those dots, those green dots, that's a giant cargo ship. And we left off oil tankers and other types of ships. That is just cargo. It is an ocean traffic jam of epic proportions, and it is causing headaches and higher costs Everywhere. Michael Tran of RBC joining us now. He leads the firm's digital intelligence strategy team. He does some great work diving into all the numbers of the data using AI and everything else. And Michael, I look at that website a lot, and, and there's always a lot of ships off Shanghai and Ningbao. I get that. Not to this level. What are you guys seeing at RBC with that the, the big data you follow? How bad is it right now off the Chinese coast? Hey, Brian, it's, it's not good. Look, I mean, Last time I was on with you, the bottlenecks were very different. We spent a lot of time talking about what I call supply chain 1.0, which was very much a focus on L.A. and Long Beach. And we know how those ports look. But what we're seeing now with supply chains 2.0 is this is really going global right now. The U.S. bottlenecks remain. Uh, you're seeing increased congestion in China, but that's also not the only place. You're also seeing increased congestion in Europe as well. Now, what we do with the big data that we've uh, put together is we created a, a metric that we call the time of turnaround. We look at 22 of the world's largest and most important ports, and we effectively 
use geospatial analytics to understand how fast or how slow uh, ships are moving through each port. So it's effectively, uh, effect, effectively a, um, um, an efficiency metric that we call time of turnaround. We look at all those different ports. When you think about Shanghai, it ranks basically third yeah. last within that space globally, followed by only Houston and LA Long Beach. You know, this is fascinating stuff because we had all the congestion of L.A. and Long Beach and then suddenly it got better. And then we realized that it got better because they just pushed a lot of the ships offshore and down to Mexico. So they could say, well, the fewer ships off the coast. Yeah, because you just moved them to Mexico sort of out of helicopter cameras way. I mean, that's literally what happened. Uh, is there any sign that that time of turnaround or some of the congestion issues in L.A. and Long Beach are getting better, even a touch? Well, I think what's interesting, Brian, is if you would have told me several months ago that just simply China would be faced with COVID, you'd have the conveyor belt moving from China to the west coast of the U.S., uh, hitting those ships hitting um, L.A. and Long Beach. If you told me that that would have slowed like it has, I would have said, well, if, if L.A. and Long Beach were operating at a normal rate, you would be able to clear that backlog just because, you know, the feed in from China into uh, LA and Long Beach would have slowed. That bottleneck should have cleared, but it's not. So when we look at our time of turnaround, right now what we're seeing is by our metric, it takes 6.9 days to enter our geofence boundary at the port of LA and Long Beach, a discharge, then exit that boundary. A month yeah. ago, that number was five days. Pre-COVID, that was 3.4 days. So in essence, what we're seeing is a ship takes twice as long today to navigate through that port than pre-COVID. So things aren't getting better. I mean, even relative to a month ago. Wow. Uh, very quickly, Michael, and this may not be in your wheelhouse, but I got to ask the Longshoremen's Union, their contract in L.A. and Long Beach expires June 30th. I mean, I doubt they'd go on strike. You never know. The two sides should be able to reach a deal. Both sides. Well, the Longshoremen have a lot of bargaining power right now. We have to admit if there were just even a couple day work stoppage at that port or those ports, they're combined. What do you think would be the ripple effect? Look, it's, it's tough, Brian. I mean, you, you look at um, the ripple effect. If you think about the best case scenario for us right now, I mean, for humanity, for markets, would be that China's able to, cl to clear COVID, right? So if you're able to, to get rid of COVID for whatever reason today, tomorrow in China, you would effectively think that, well, these ships should start moving pretty quickly from China to global ports. Now, what happens if that were to play out would be that you get a lot of lumpy, large shipments start to navigate over the course of the next several weeks to other global ports. Now, you could see a scenario where, you know, it, it takes several weeks, it takes a month to get to the final destination. If we start to see a lot of ships move towards uh, the port of LA and Long Beach, you start to overwhelm the port leading into those negotiations yep. uh, in the summer. So, you know, if you see a scenario like that, uh, with China clearing COVID, that doesn't necessarily mean the end of the supply chain issues, right? So you're going to overwhelm the port of LA yeah. and Long Beach just once again. Might be why more ships going through the canal and going up to Savannah and Charleston, and they're seeing elevated levels. Maybe there's a lot of concern about the West Coast. We'll see fascinating data. Michael Tran of RBC, love it. Welcome back anytime, Michael. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. 
All right, let's now get a check on some of this morning's other headlines outside of the global markets and your money. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York now with those. What's going on this Tuesday morning, Francis? Hi, Brian. Lots going on this morning. We start with a multi-state manhunt for a former corrections officer and an inmate that has come to an end. Vicki White and Casey White were on the run for more than a week. The pair was captured in Evansville, Indiana, after a police pursuit. Police say Vicki White died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Casey White was arrested and will return to Alabama to face charges. Now to the growing tensions over the future of abortion rights. Last night, as abortion rights supporters demonstrated outside Justice Samuel Alito's Virginia home, the Senate voted to extend security to Supreme Court justices' immediate family members. That bill now goes to the House. Protests have now taken place in the neighborhoods of three conservative justices. Andy Warhol's famed blue silk screen portrait of Marilyn Monroe fetched $195 million at an auction at Christie's New York. It shattered the record for a work by an American artist, topping a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting that sold for $110 million in 2017. Proceeds from the sale will go to charity. And NASA is showing off the power of the James Webb Telescope. There's a new image from this $10 billion technology that has produced the most detailed image of a galaxy outside of the Milky Way. And check out the difference. On the left here, you see the image from the retired telescope next to the one on the right. So talk about getting what you paid for. And yeah, they say a picture is worth, you know, it's priceless. Uh, but in that case, that's what $10 million, or $10 billion, I should say. We'll get to Brian. Still pretty. Maybe somebody could put that in a print, and then they could make that a painting, and then they could sell that in like 70 years for a couple hundred million. What do you think? Is that not Even you and that. I? We're going together, friends. Get a filter. Francis? Get a filter and do it on the cheap, right? It's what everybody else does. It cheats. <laughs> or you can do that. that. That too. Francis Rivera, always practical. Francis, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, up next, right here on Wex, Elon Musk apparently trying to please European regulators over his Twitter takeover bid pledge he is making over content coming up. All that as we leave you to commercial break with stock futures higher across the board. That's right. They're in the green. We're back on a Tuesday right after this. Stick around. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. All right, welcome back. Time now for some big money movers. Three key stock stories that are happening right now. Stock number one, that is trader favorite AMC. All you apes out there. Shares jumping 4% after the movie chain reported its strongest first quarter in two years. Consumers coming back to the theaters in a big way. Sales coming in more than $40 million more than the median forecast. Still, AMC shares down a whopping 
2% from their all-time high of 72.60 a share. Ouch. Stock number two is vaccine maker Novavax, dropping more than 10% on earnings miss. It came in at 256 a share. Revenue of 704 million. Analysts were looking for 13 cents per share more. If you're looking for upside to the story, Novavax reported its first profitable quarter from a global vaccine rollout. And stock number three is Upstart. It's an artificial intelligence company, and it is going to be your disaster of the day. Shares are down more than 45%. That's right, 45% on disappointing results. Now, they did actually top estimates, but clearly expectations were even higher. Guidance was not good. Upstart down 46% in the pre-market. That is brutal. All right. We are rounding the turn here in the 5 o'clock hour and still ahead on Worldwide Exchange, your morning RBI and a roundup of Wall Street's top strategists, their year-end S&P price targets, and just how wrong pretty much everyone has been so far. Some numbers you got to see after this. All right, welcome or welcome back. Looking like a lot better day than the last couple of sessions. We are seeing stock futures. They are higher, in fact, across the board. The NASDAQ futures up 1.6%. I know it lost 4% yesterday, more than that at the end of last week. But, hey, we are in the green across the board. Oil's down a touch, and actually bond yields are coming down just a bit. Well, we talk about the NASDAQ because big tech kind of runs the show. And the stock route has hit big tech the hardest. And the losses in investor value the last couple of days are truly staggering for the biggest of the big. This is, call it, random but painful. Just seven mega-cap names, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Google, NVIDIA, and Facebook, now lost more than $1 trillion in market cap in just three sessions. Let's average that out of about $330 billion per day lost for three days. Truly a remarkable stat. May get some of that back today, but wow, a trillion bucks in three trading sessions. All right, enough doom and gloom, shall we? The sun is up, the weather's getting warmer. So also making headlines this morning, Elon Musk says his plans for Twitter are in agreement with new European Union social media rules. Those guidelines are designed to force companies to do more to police illegal content. Keep in mind, they are not in effect yet. Musk's comments about making Twitter a platform for free speech has led to speculation. He could relax the company's content moderation rules. Also, Match Group suing Google, accusing Google of illegally monopolizing the market for distributing ads or apps, rather, on Android and forcing companies to use Google's own billing system and then taking a cut of the money. They don't like it, so they're suing Google. In the meantime, two former Amazon workers who were involved in a Staten Island unionization effort tell CNBC they have been fired in recent days. The men were working with Amazon Labor Group, which is a group led by a former and current employees. And last month, workers at Amazon's largest warehouse in New York City voted to join the union, but a smaller facility nearby rejected a similar effort last week. All right, now let's talk Peloton. You may be riding one right now watching the show. If you are, thank you. But we are going to be watching their results. They're out in a few hours, the first quarter with their new CEO, Barry McCarthy. And while, of course, the product itself has been a hit, stock's been a disaster for most investors. Don't use that word lightly. Peloton stock is now down 89% from its all-time high. 89%. But your next guest says there is still potential for the company. Daniel Adam is Senior VP at Loop Capital Markets. 
And he joins us now. They're doing about, uh, what, 3 million users, 40 bucks, whatever a month, caught, I don't know, 1.2 to 1.4, and seemingly recurring revenue every year. Uh, but it feels like, Daniel, and I get this from your notes as well, that the market is prescribing negative value to their hardware business. Is it not? I think it is at this point. Um, the worst case scenario seems to be priced in, in our view. Uh, if you look at the most recent leg down, it's it's on rumors that the company is looking to um, raise an equity stake, a, a minority equity stake. So it, it's cash concerns um, that the company needs some kind of cash infusion. We think that the, the key, the focus uh, uh, for this quarter is, quite frankly, going to be the cash balance. Last quarter, Peloton ended with $1.6 billion in cash on its balance sheet. Our estimate for, for this quarter, the fiscal third quarter, is that they'll exit with about $1.3 billion. To the extent it's below that and the cash burn is higher, stock, you know, quite frankly, could trade lower. But, you know, our expectation is that it'll be $1.3 or above and, and um and the stock should trade higher on that. So th- this is important. So what you're saying is, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Daniel, this is not an exercise bike story. This is not a connected device story. Right now, Peloton stock is a liquidity problem story, potentially. Yeah. Well, Brian, you know, quite frankly, from 140 to 50, it was still a bike story and a subscriber growth story. The move from 50 to 30, maybe even still, you know, a, a bike and, and fundamental story. This latest uh, move lower, we think, is is pricing in sort of liquidity concerns and, and risk around the company's viability, which we think they have ample cash to uh, survive at least, at least the next few years. And, and they'll come out a very strong, formidable player in a much more consolidated market. Because unlike a lot of other companies in the past, many, by the way, that are now gone or their stocks went to zero and they went through bankruptcy, Peloton does have a loyal customer base, correct? And I say that because yeah. I'm not opinionizing. Their, their churn rate, the, the amount of people who cancel every month or re-sign up is very low. So people tend, it looks like, to stick with them. 40 bucks a month, they probably got some pricing power to raise that as well. So they are generating cash. I presume they're also cutting costs You've got a $55 target on the stock, Daniel, so clearly you yep. think it's going to be okay longer term. Absolutely. So the, the, if you separate the two businesses between subscription and then uh, on the, uh, the hardware being the, the other end of the business, the hardware business loses money. The subscription business is the cash cow. And so if you were, in theory, to separate the two, you wouldn't get a lot of subs- subscriber growth, but at the same time, you'd be able to milk that cash cow, which is the subscription business. And so, um, in part, our, our $55 target is based on that sum of the parts, which ascribes uh, a higher value to the subscription side of the business. Daniel Adam, Loop Capital Markets. Peloton numbers out a little bit earlier. We'll let you get ready for them, Daniel. They're going to be big. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. 89% off the highs. Wow. All right, on deck. Why Tesla is having even more problems in Shanghai. Plus, your morning RBI with a look at just how wrong nearly every Wall Street strategist has been so far this year. At least so far. Some numbers you got to hear. Stock futures, though, they're up. The sun's coming up. The weather's getting warmer. We're glad you're with us. And we're back right after this. 
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, everybody. Stock futures, they are actually higher across the board right now. That is the first time in days that we have been able to see that. So good morning. And all this despite the fact that China's COVID lockdown, seemingly never ending in some cities, continue hitting global companies doing business there. Tesla, it is no exception. Let's get more now with what is going on with Eunice Yoon, who joins us with more on the story. Eunice, good morning. Good morning, Brian. The impact of the lockdown in Shanghai is being reflected in the latest data for April for Tesla. A prominent car association said that Tesla produced over 10,000 cars here for the month. Uh, this is a, a far, far, far lower than the figure that was uh, seen for March in terms of sales as well as production. Uh, Tesla's data comes as Tesla uh, says in a statement that it has no notice of a prominent of a production hall to add its Shanghai facility. And this is amid reports that its capacity had been constrained because of a part shortage. Now, Tesla's situation is just the latest example of the impact of the lockdowns on the supply chain and the, the real constraint of capacity here. Uh, there's no end in sight so far for this zero COVID approach. Um, in fact, uh, Beijing, which just wrapped up a presser moments ago, reported 59 new infections today, 836 in total for this latest outbreak. But it still is uh, uh, imposing tighter restrictions, increasing its mass COVID testing rounds and adding uh, anal swabs uh, for some of the more highly controlled quarantine areas. Shanghai also reported about 3,000 cases today. Uh, this is mostly asymptomatic and fewer deaths at only six. Even so, Shanghai is in what it's described as a quiet period. So now it's ended all non-essential deliveries to residences and also are, are now the authorities there are now uh, sweeping entire communities and buildings of people to government quarantine if they're building has one positive case. Now, there is one question, Brian, as to whether or not this is a short term or having a long term disruption. We've had one indication in terms of the business perspective that this could be long term. AmCham, the American Chamber of Commerce, yeah. put out a survey saying that U.S. business confidence has been shaken and that for Shanghai production, 15 percent, they said, is fully shut. Fifty nine percent has been slowed or reduced and in terms of their investment, um, Brian, they're delaying and decreasing investment. 52% said that's, that's what they're doing now and that's what they plan to do. One case in a building and many people in the building or the entire building are locked in, locked down or hauled off. Uh, for the number of cases in Shanghai that are one-tenth the number we had yesterday in the state of Rhode Island. It makes no sense to anybody watching, Eunice, but I know you can't comment on it. We're wishing you well, the entire crew there well. I know these are tough times in China. You know, we love you, so Eunice, be well, all right? What the hell's going on over there? All right, time now for today's RBI. And today, let's dive into Wall Street stocks and expectations. Because if you were optimistic, the markets would go up this year. Don't feel embarrassed. You are not alone. Well, they still could. Because pretty much, though, every macro strategist on Wall Street was also bullish coming into the year. We know that because most firms put out end-of-year price targets on the S&P 500. We snatch them up, make a list, and use it as a kind of scorecard on which firms and their strategists got it right. And right now, the answer is none. Zero. Not even close. At least not the ones we know anyway. Look at this. 
It's all the price targets of strategists on the street. They're mostly bunched together. Wall Street tends to do that, of course. No one really wants to go out on a limb, a safety in numbers kind of thing. But there is a range of about 900 points between the high and the low estimates. Now, right now, our friend John Stolfus of Oppenheimer has the high estimate at 5,300. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson and Stiefel's Barry Bannister are both tied at the low estimate of 4,400. Everybody else is kind of stacked in the middle with a median estimate of 4875 to end the year in the S&P 500. We are 17% below that right now. And even worse for these estimates, as you go down, it takes a higher percentage gain to get back to where you were because math. Bottom line, in order to get just to the median estimate of where strategists think we are going to end the year, the S&P 500 now has to rise 21%. Heck, to get to the lowest estimates, the most right strategist on the street so far, the index is going to have to jump more than 9%. Could it all happen? Sure. There's a long way to go in the year. And there are signs that inflation is starting to peak. But 25 years of doing this tells me you're going to see a lot of strategists begin to cut their estimates and cut them soon. And once one does it, the rest will follow. Quickly, I've seen this movie before. I'll bet you a coffee I'm right. Random, but interesting. Or horribly wrong. All right, coming up. Looking for full capitulation? When will this bottom be in? Susquehanna's Chris Murphy on the signs he's seeing in the options market right now. First, during May, we are celebrating Asian, American, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We're featuring some of our CNBC teammates and friends. Here's Dom Chu. One of the things I appreciate most about being an Asian American during AAPI Heritage Month is all the time I get to look back and reflect on the lessons that I've learned from my parents and my grandparents, the cultural aspects, the food, the everything that makes us so unique as Asian Americans. But these days, I'm reminded that there are so many more things that bring us together than drive us apart. So this AAPI Heritage Month, I'm gonna focus on those similarities. All right, welcome back. Here's a quick menu of everything that is happening today. You've got the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index coming out. We'll see if that drops. We'll be hearing more speeches from key Fed leaders, including New York Fed President John Williams. We'll get high interest reports from Peloton, Electric, Electronic Arts, and Wind Resorts as well. So those are earnings, by the way. Let's hope there's earnings in the earnings. All right, let's welcome in now Chris Murphy. He is co-head of Derivative Strategy at Susquehanna Financial Group. He joins us now by phone. And Chris, it's so great to have you on because, listen, you put out some of the best work on the street. And as we have learned from you, uh, options kind of run the show now. They not only tell sort of what's going to happen, where the bets are being placed, but they also move equities around. What are you seeing from your perch on the options market? Any sign of full capitulation yet? Uh, Good morning, Brian. Uh, So, you know, we are certainly getting closer. We are not seeing that full capitulation sign yet. The two things that we're always looking at is uh, volatility expectations. They've spiked. You know, that's the VIX. Um, they've spiked, but not nearly as much as they did in, uh, like, the great financial crisis or COVID. But we're also really looking at correlation. So what that is is when all the stocks and everything begins to move together. And I know that certainly felt like the case recently, um, but it's not quite at the level of great financial crisis uh, or COVID. Yeah, explain to us the difference between now or the last couple of weeks and March of 2020. Sure. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, VIX 
uh, and those volatility measurements in the mid-30s versus, uh, you know, twice as high. Um, so, you know, as much as it feels painful now, you know, I would also point out that um, so much positioning has been pulled back. Um, so the trading that we're seeing now feels a little bit more like a, a buyer strike and everybody kind of just getting out of the way. We're not seeing these surges in volumes that also are related to surges in volatility. So everyone's kind of just either waiting for the Fed to finally throw a real, you know, gauntlet down. You know, they didn't say use that 75 basis comment and really shake the market so we can rebuild or waiting to see if the stock market basically just does the Fed's job for it. Yeah, and in, in March of 2020, the S now again, very different story, pandemic, panic, lockdowns, everybody just hunkered in. The S&P 500 fell, I think it was, we'll call it 31% from its high to its pandemic low in like six or seven weeks. We're only down about 16% from our all-time high. I shouldn't say only, Chris. I know it's painful to watch for a lot of people. But the point is, bottoms historically, whether it's 2000, 2001, 2008, 2009, 2020, they're, they're down more than 16%, are they not? I mean, the Nasdaq's down yeah. more. I'm talking about the S&P 500. Yes, and, you know, the parallel that I've really started to look at recently is, um, is 2011. You know, first of all, just a lot of similarities that are happening, whether, you know, we've had our first five-week losing streak till then, uh, first time we've had multiple Fridays in a row where more than 95% of the S&P has sold off. But 2011 was also, you know, two-ish years after the Fed rewrote the playbook and did some unprecedented maneuvering and things. And that's kind of where we are right now. So we're down, like you said, 16 17% from the all-time high. S&P in 2011 eventually sold off uh, 22% from the all-time high. And the options indicators do point towards, you know, seventh inning type thing. And if you're just looking at the uh, magnitude of the move, that's also the seventh inning type of a, of a time period. So that's really what I would be focusing on, that parallel right now. Yeah, so what is it possible, Chris, that the NASDAQ could bottom before the S&P 500? We showed the difference just now in returns. NASDAQ down 11% from its all-time high, more than the S&P 500. Or do you think the entire market, everything, will kind of bottom at the same time? No, I mean, I think you're, I think you're right. I think we're more focused on the broader market right now, like when everything sells off together. And that would more be the S&P. You know, we all know how much under the hood, especially in the NASDAQ, those Certain technology sectors have gotten hit so hard. So I think we're maybe past. That was the first mover. I think we're now at the, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's feel confident it's over when everything is washed out at once and every single sector, regardless of what it is, sells off together. And that's more going to be the S&P. Okay. And we've talked about it before, and I've said it on the air a hundred times, Chris, how important is Tesla, its stock, and its options to the market? I mean, really important, right? I think it is. Now, what I would start to wonder is in this stage, you know, Tesla, when we had so much uh, of the retail focus, um, that is not there quite as much anymore. Um, you know, it's just not as active. That, that group has, you know, maybe pulled back, um, you know, started to lose uh, money. They got washed like out. Not, they got washed out. So Tesla uh, was, you know, the, the, the beacon for that group. Um, and now that that group is not as impactful, um, it's still obviously a very impactful stock, but maybe not quite as much as it was in 2011. That's, that's good to know. So maybe the correlation between Tesla and the rest of the market will, will ease some. And a lot of people, unfortunately, did get, they got stopped out. They got margined out, by the way. Chris Murphy of Susquehanna laying it out for us in a way no other can. 
Chris, really appreciate your insight. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, folks, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. we got another big show tomorrow. We'll see you in 23 hours. And we get to leave you today, unlike the last three or four sessions, with stock futures in the green. Enjoy it while it lasts. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.